The talk tonight is about our longing for freedom and beginner's mind. The spiritual journey uh, requires vast amounts of courage and inspiration. And I wanted to begin with a a quotation from Albert Einstein about his um, search to understand the fundamental laws of the universe. He said, The years of anxious searching in the dark, with their intense longing, their alternations of confidence and exhaustion, and final emergence into the light. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> it's, I, that's so beautiful. The years of anxious searching in the dark with their intense longing, the alternations of confidence and exhaustion could describe a day of meditation practice. And the times when we feel like we emerge into the light, the peak experiences of meditation. I described um, the happy Sayadaw in my last talk, uh, the, the one up in the Sagain Hills in Burma, and I wanted to describe something else that uh, he said to me in answering a question, because I think it's... Um, kind of that description of final emergence into light. Sometimes it seems to me that different traditions of Buddhism are, you know, within different traditions of Buddhism, that different foundations of mindfulness are emphasized. And not only emphasized, sometimes kind of being put out as this is the only way to practice, this is the only way you're going to get to enlightenment. Um, And so the four foundations of mindfulness are in mindfulness of the body and any aspect of the body. So it's when you become mindful of a breath or um, a pain in the back or a, a tingling sensation on the cheek or whenever you are walking eating, brushing your hair, urinating. It's just like it's any aspect of body. And the second foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of feelings. And again, that's not emotion. It means that with seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and thinking, in any moment of consciousness, there is a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling. It's a mental feeling that arises, again, simultaneously each moment of consciousness. <clears throat> so anytime you're aware of um, a delicious chocolate chip cookie mm-hmm. at tea time, or uh, maybe an unpleasant, ex- uh, unpleasant feeling with a really cold whiff of air in the morning, whatever, you know, it could be pleasant if you're having a hot flash. <laughs> <laughs> So, that's the second foundation of mindfulness, Vedana. The third is citta, any time we're aware of any mental states. That's a pretty vast vast, uh, foundation of mindfulness. And the last one, dhammas, 
are basically general objects. It's like everything else in the universe that we can be aware of is in this fourth category. So what the Buddha was teaching was this extraordinary inclusiveness that that really we are to be mindful of anything that appears, that takes birth. Any particular moment of experience is worthy of our attention because it will bring us to freedom. So we don't have to pick and choose between a moment of fear and a moment of eating a banana or the sound of a bird or the sound of a chainsaw. That any of these moments we can awaken within. <clears throat> so I asked the Sayadaw, the happy Sayadaw, about the four foundations and if, you know, I was just kinda kind of expecting a very different answer than what I was um given. And of course he started laughing, you know, ha 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 the four foundations of mindfulness, ha 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 <laughs> and he said Oh, yeah, I used to, um, you know, be more concerned about each one of these. But now it's like I live in an orchard. And each moment is like I'm just eating a different fruit. And each foundation of mindfulness is like I'm being in a different orchard. (laughs) And I'd never heard anybody describe liberation like just like that, just like each moment is this possibility for this delicious fruit of awakening. And any foundation of mindfulness is a good way to go with that. You know, so light and so beautiful. But also, I think, um, giving us a sense of such abundance. Instead of thinking, you know, that there's a scarcity of moments that maybe we could possibly awaken within, that we have this abundance of moments that we can awaken in. Ha <laughs> 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 <clears throat> So the first part of a moment of mindfulness. is remembering to be here. And it's really that simple. It's just remembering to apply present time awareness to our experience so we're not lost in a storyline or a concept about our experience. And as we all know, we can hear that um, and we can understand that that's simple but to a normal neurotic mind, that is challenging. And why is it challenging? Well, when we're, before we learn to name everything, before we learn that that's a floor, and that's a ceiling, and that's a bell, it's a very insecure world, very unboundaried, formless. Uh, and then it's, it's, supposed to happen. It's age-appropriate that we learn, oh, that's a deer. Oh, that's a turkey. That's a person. You know, it's really important that we do learn to name things, and that's how we grow as human beings and learn to function. But then they become prisons for us. You know, whenever we think we know something... We don't investigate, we don't explore, we don't apply beginner's mind. And I think the word, that 
that description of mindfulness, beginner's mind, or another way it's said is a soft readiness. It's so beautiful. It's just a soft readiness, meaning that anything can happen. Mindfulness doesn't protect us from anything that can happen. What it does is it protects us in the present moment because it helps us see that anything that happens is going to be okay if we have this relationship of non-judgmental attention with it. So when we remember to be here, there's another aspect that's very important to apply to our um, experience, which is investigation. And investigation is said to be like turning on a light bulb in a dark room. It lights up more of what we can see. It's really that journey into the unknown, investigation. It allows us to, uh, if we have the courage... It allows us to go from thinking we know what a breath is or thinking we know what fear is or thinking we know what a deer is or a turkey is to being willing to let go of the past, be insecure. And really it's like falling into the present moment. It's leaping into the unknown. It's what allows us to go from being on automatic pilot to alive, awake. Sometimes when we're on a retreat, we'll experience a certain buildup of energy. There's a reason why all the people on staff at Spirit Rock take care of us. It's so that we're not putting our energy into a lot of doing. Uh, And if the energy builds, you're meant to get uncomfortable sometimes. Because it's only out of that energy building that we can go into unknown territory. It takes energy. Sometimes um, energy is called courageous energy. Well, another way that I like to think of the word investigation is really questioning wisely. And in some of my groups today, um, we were talking about, well, what is, you know, this is called insight meditation, you know, but how does that happen? And this isn't done through analysis. And this, again, often those of us who are drawn to the spiritual practice, I think we get so seduced by figuring things out. And you know there's such a tendency like where we'll be sitting or walking and, you know, we'll just, <laughs> like Einstein, <laughs> you know, we're trying to figure out the basic laws of the universe, the truth, through our intellectual thought process. And it can seem so much like what we should be doing, yeah? I mean, it's just like so close to what we, what we we're almost like figured it out, but really it's not done through um, our own experience. It's all just done through thought. And the meditation practice is meant to help us cut through that to be willing to, again, drop into the unknown, to get inside the experience and know it from the inside wordlessly. And so the insight is an aha. 
you just know. It's called intuitive insight. When we shift from conceptual knowledge to direct experience, we go into wordlessness, and that's true silence. It's beyond mind and body, beyond experience. So ultimately, the truth can't be described. It can only be experienced. Sometimes we can get attached to peak experiences in practice, but they're also important to um, understand. A peak experience in meditation is a marriage of two opposite kinds of attention, and they will, it'll feel like a paradox, and we're often on one part of this experience or another part, but when they come together, it'll feel like grace. You can't make it happen, but by coming into a retreat, you um, increase the odds of it happening. It's like somebody said once, um, you know, practice is making yourself more accident-prone, meaning more awakened-prone, because you're creating the conditions for that to happen. We talk about a receptive attention, receiving our experience. That requires connecting and sustaining. It also requires not identifying with the experience as me or mine or I. So say whatever the experience is, say it's a sound, and the attention is able to meet that experience, receive it, um, sustain it. Sometimes it'll feel like there's no me, no sound, but just hearing, just the direct experience of hearing. There's no feeling of duality. There's no controller. There's no controlled. Sometimes it'll... There's so many different ways we can um, try to talk around that experience, but it's like you know something from the inside. You know that there's no separate self present, and it feels wonderful. Um... Mostly we have to learn how to do that at the beginning of practice with one sense door. For some people it's easier to learn how to experience non-duality through hearing. For some people it'll be through breathing. For some people it'll be body sensation. For some people it'll be knowing consciousness. You know, it's, it's very different for different people. But we all have had glimpses or we wouldn't be in this room. We might have had a glimpse at five years old, at ten years old. It doesn't depend on age, but certainly there'll be a certain point in adulthood where that longing for um, more than the human existential predicament of feeling separate will happen. As we learn to apply a relationship of receptivity, connectedness, and non-attachment to one sense door, we learn how to apply it to another sense door. If you know how to do it with sound, then you start learning how to do it with the emotion, like of sadness or fear. 
So you can see that at first we might be able to have some skill with one little, <laughs> one little aspect of human experience, and then you learn how to do it with a little more, and a little more, and a little more. So that's like that gradual awakening, gradual spiritual skill. I was, um, I forget where I was, I was flying somewhere and uh, in a hotel, and I don't usually do this, but I turned on a television, and public television was on, and there was some program on about an artist, and you know, I kind of just was distracted, but I started watching it, and it was this incredible story about a woman who um, decided to make her own tightrope from scratch and learn to walk on it. From scratch, you know. I mean, I just, I find these people amazing. Uh, So she went to some shipyards in, you know, Boston and learned how to make rope in the old way, which took a long time, you know. And then she um, had, like, the video that we were watching on television, I was watching, was of her learning how to walk on the tightrope. Uh, and it was so similar to the practice. I wanted to share it because it was so interesting. She started to learn, and you could. She was narrating as you were watching her fall off the tightrope again and again, and she discovered that uh, balance wasn't keeping perfect balance. It was like she was out of balance all the time. So she never found this place of just walking without having to keep her balance. What she discovered was that she found balance by being out of balance all the time and allowing that. And this is, again, our human uh, predicament. We keep thinking that we're going to find this peak experience and liberation through managing to keep life one way, or to have a certain experience one way. But in actual fact, it's just the opposite. Because life is moving. And this is, you know, we encourage you over and over again, look at a breath, look at thought, look at your steps, look at everything. It's moving so fast. And of course, you can see just the evolution of instruction. It's not that paying attention to thought is any less than paying attention to body or breath. It's just harder. And it's harder because it's moving faster. And so it takes a stiller mind to see it clearly, to notice it appear and disappear. There's a teacher in Burma that I like a lot named Ukundala, and the way he will start instructions is to have you notice things disappearing. He doesn't have you notice things appearing. So it's interesting, but with the instruction, he'd start, you notice, just notice the end of the breath, notice the end of steps, notice the end of fear, notice the end of, of what you're eating. It's quite interesting, different ways of instructing. But what do you think he's getting at? It's moving so quickly. (laughs) It's like moving at the speed of lightning. 
And this is like discerning this, to understand this, is to start to understand um, the three characteristics of existence. So that the, the practice of mindfulness, investigation, courage, of, of, of just being here and noticing, it's meant to help us to understand impermanence. Investigation especially is meant to light it up. And, and it's not just kind of an intellectual, shallow understanding. I had this incredible experience around this, and I feel like I understand impermanence. Uh, you know, I've looked at it a lot and feel like I understand it. Um, and my, my stepmother fell out of a hospital bed two years ago, um, right before my father got sick and died. Um, and it, it's kind of a hard story, um, my relationship with her. My father was seeing her when I was a kid, and it was really messy, and um, I hated her. <laughs> uh, uh, and as a child, what I saw is this woman who just was after my dad, you know, and was destroying my family, and um, that's how I saw her as a child. And I grew to mature and have more space around it, but it just felt like that's what she spent her whole life doing, was just totally revolved around my father and even, you know, when they finally got married and lived together, it was just like all revolving around him. Um, and then she fell and was in the, um, ended up in a nursing home. And then my dad died. And I went to tell her, um, and it seemed like the months before my dad died, she was fairly in fairly good consciousness, but she started, um, losing her sense of, um, rationality. And so I went to see her and I told her that my dad died and her husband died and um, she cried and I went away and I came back the next day and she said, who was that man who died? I was like, wow, you know, how can you spend your whole life like just focused on one being and then Wow, to just not even remember who they are. I mean, it was just like a level of understanding and permanence that was just so... Um, it had such impact for me. I went, when I went to first see the happy Sayadaw, actually, um, I went with this... Um, young person who has become fluent in Burmese and Pali. And his parents came for his ordination to be a monk. And um, I know them well. And we went up to um, Upper Burma to the monastery where we were staying to visit. Uh, And his father has had lymphoma and had to quit being a doctor. And um, he's in remission. But, you know, there's always that edge of having come so close to death. Um, So he asked... The Sado about um, you know any meditations that he knew about death and ha <laughs> ha <laughs> he's like ah. and this, I mean this is the place I saw him laugh the most he laughed till there were tears coming down his cheeks he's like laughing he's like samsara ha 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 it's like people think they're not gonna die he just you know it's like it's just so funny ha 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 and it was so interesting to just, again, that there was such a depth 
of understanding of impermanence, but such a, a complete acceptance to the point of such lightness about it. Um, and then I asked him about how he had reflected in the past about death. And he said, oh, very simple. I just say, um, <clears throat> infinite beings have died. Infinite beings are dying. Infinite beings will die. I too will die. Pretty complete. <laughs> and so simple. So easy to remember. You know, you can remember it anywhere. On a subway, in the bathtub, before you go to sleep. And again, this reflection is meant to be protective. It's meant to help us put things in re- perspective so that maybe we don't spend our whole life focused on one being without really listening to our longing for freedom to really put in our time. There can be such a um, range of joy and sorrow in this world and this is meant to stop the mind and stop the heart, heart and help us um, want to search deeply. And I found that you know I can go from really falling into a black hole, and I described it once for myself as feeling like an insignificant, worthless, heavy lump of self. You know, you know how you can just feel like this heavy lump of selfness? Um, you know, there's that level of experience that we can um, navigate through to, you know, these experiences where there's no resistance to anything whatsoever. There's no, no aversion, no attachment, totally out of the way, complete peace. When we first um, come to meditation, we tend to have a pretty scattered mind. Yeah, I mean, and in some of my groups, we were talking about um, what is stillness and what is it for? Uh, And the image that's often used is the scattered mind is like the surface of a pond in a storm or a cloudy, windy day. And we all know what that mind is. It's like we cannot see clearly. So anything that we can do, again, it could be, again, that we use the breath or sound or the body or something to bring about the stillness of the surface of the mind. But that remember, that's 50% of the practice. It's like learning how to do that has deeper and deeper levels. But it is so that we can explore. It is like if you use that metaphor, so that everything in the universe can be reflected, as well as everything, the depth, the whole universe can be penetrated, can be received and understood. So a moment of awakening is really just a moment of complete presence, of complete understanding, 
It's a complete out understanding out of a complete presence, not a, an understanding that's coming out of the head, but out of the heart, being here fully. If we practice that and practice it, um, we go from that kind of scattered mind to a more still mind um, to really um, seeing clearly to sometimes being willing not to know, not to know what's happening and dropping into the unknown, not to know what's happening, dropping into the unknown. Albert Einstein said, the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible. Sometimes I find that um, reading the latest um, information that's coming out about physics is more applicable to my meditation practice than sometimes reading the suttas, or at least I find it inspiring. And there's a new physicist out named Brian Greene, and his last book was called The Elegant Universe. And I read a um, review of his latest book on string theory, but it recommended that you read The Elegant Universe first. And I, you know, I have to let you know, if you haven't guessed, I am not a physicist type. You know, but I find that it's interesting. I cannot hold a conversation with Brian Greene about string theory, certainly, but it's so interesting to read. You know, let's see. It's so funny. Yeah. String theory reveals that the universe consists of 11 dimensions where the fabric of space tears and repairs itself and all matter. I mean, isn't that great? I mean, just... (laughs) I mean, it's just like... (laughs) Don't you love that people are doing that, you know? String theory means that there are vibrations of microscopic tiny loops of energy. Now, we all know that. (laughs) But it's great that they know that. (laughs) And what's great is, well, at the end of this book, he says, I love this part, maybe there is a limit to comprehensibility. I mean, they're catching up. (laughs) And so when you find yourself really trying to figure out, you know, what the breath is, (laughs) analytically, try to remember that there's a limit to comprehensibility (laughs) or when you're trying to figure out why you're having that pain in the back because of, you know, whatever you did ten lifetimes ago, you know, remember that there's a limit to comprehensibility. Sometimes um, a good fairy tale is more um, inspiring than physics. <laughs> so I'd like to read um, a little passage about leaping into the unknown. This is from a book called The Golden Key by George MacDonald, and it, it's an old book. 
And it's a story about two young people, Masi, a young boy, and Tangle, a young girl, who go through this very long, arduous spiritual journey um, to uh, seek the truth and to be free. And it's very long and arduous. And in some ways, you know, you find within the book that um, one day will really be like a year. You know, that's a lot of how things unfold. And in the book, they grow very old, um, but they don't know they've grown old in the search. And they get separated. uh, And they've gone... Well, this is really uh, Tangle's part. And she's gone uh, to the old man of the sea as a guide, and now she's with the old man of the earth. And she has to get to the old man of the fire. These are all guides on her way. So the old man of the earth says to her, that river runs down to the dwelling of the oldest man of all, the old man of the fire. I wish I could go to see him, but I must mind my work. That river is the only way to him. Then the old man of the earth stooped over the floor of the cave, raised a huge stone from it, and left it leaning. It disclosed a great hole that went plumb down. That is the way, he said. But there are no stairs, she said. You must throw yourself in. There is no other way. That's, that's the way of intuitive insight. And then she gets to a place that she doesn't know where she is. Um, and she finds this little child, just a little naked child, and that's um, how this passage starts. So she asks this little child, Where's the old man of the fire? Here I am, answered the child. What can I do for you? There was such an awfulness of absolute repose on the face of the child that Tangle stood quiet before him. He had no smile, but the love in his large gray eyes was deep as the center. And with the repose there lay on his face a shimmer as of moonlight, which seemed as if any moment it might break into such a ravishing smile as would cause the beholder to weep themselves to death. But the smile never came, and the moonlight there lay unbroken, for the heart of the child was too deep for any smile to reach from it to his face. Are you the oldest man of all, Tangle? At last, last, although filled with awe, asked, Yes, I am. I am very, very old. I am able to help you, you know. I can help everybody. So clarity, clarity comes from being willing to drop into the unknown, to not need the stairs, and to leap. There are limits to what we can grasp intellectually. 
And sometimes I think we can all have the experience of understanding that believing anything can be so painful. Believing a lot of our thoughts is so painful. My great-niece, who is um, five, um, when I met her when she was four, she had just uh, started to go to play school. And when she'd come home from play school, she had this new thing that she would do, which would she'd stick her butt out to me, and she'd go, poopy pants. (laughs) (laughs) And then she'd go into this giggle, like she'd just think it was so funny. And I'd be like, poopy pants? (laughs) And just, you know, for a whole year, just like whenever she'd see me, she just, this was the best thing she could share with Auntie Michelle, you know, poopy pants, and just sticking her butt out, poopy pants, ha, 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 ha. And I was trying to figure out, like, what is so funny about poopy pants, you know? And then I realized, wow, she just got out of diapers. It's like she's really, you know, children are so close to diapers, and there's that pride, but also, you know, you lose it sometimes, right? And it's funny. Um, But we like to think that we're progressing. (laughs) As human beings. And I think there's a lot to be said for us humans um, in terms of poopy pants. Um, And check it out. When you are despairing over the loss of a peak experience, (laughs) or when you feel like you should have gotten over something, or I'm still, I'm still getting caught in this. I should be better than that. Or we compare ourselves with somebody else. We have so many self-assessment tapes so much self-judgment. We're so hard on ourselves. And it really, I mean, children are so transparent. For me, it's so helpful to see my niece just just giggle uncontrollably over something that was so hard to actually accomplish. And we're not that far from this as human beings. The Buddha said that comparing is madness. And look at how much suffering, you know, at the beginning of a retreat, we'll think like we're the only one who's having a hard time, right? And everybody else is doing, you know, much better than us. Or, you know, we'll think that maybe we're missing something if we don't go to that teacher. Or we're missing something and if we don't do this practice. Or, you know, it's just like this incredible insecurity, And that this is something to be the most mindful of, I think, is just that sense of thinking that self-referencing thoughts should disappear or um, self-judgment thoughts should disappear or comparing thoughts should disappear. We're human. And it's much more that you start to see that we don't have to fall for it. If you're sleepy sometime tomorrow, that doesn't mean that you're regressing. It means that it's something, it's an orchard. We're living in an orchard, and it's something that you can awaken with. And that means, what does that mean? It means that if you don't identify with that experience, if you connect with it, then it's not a problem. And you learn what freedom is 
with any experience. So whatever it is, when we say to ourselves, oh, especially as you're getting older, oh, I'm still, I did 20 years of therapy, I've done 200 retreats, and I'm still working with whatever it is. That means that that experience is your ticket to liberation. It means that you can learn everything about working with aversion and attachment with that experience. You know, that's going to be your most um, exquisite orchard. The very thing that we think is an obstacle is really the thing that will teach us the most. It's our guru. Um, I'm not exactly what we would call a jock, and um, but because I was encouraged to kind of try to do some exercise, and it's not that I like walking, but I was having back problems, and um, so I tried to um, get into kind of this exercise class, and the f- first exercise class didn't work out. <laughs> um, and it was really funny because this woman I went to was highly recommended. And, but this woman took steroids and her muscles were like really big. And, and there were huge weights in the class and I came in there. I, you know, I just didn't fit in this gym. I mean, they were all people like big muscles, you know, and just reps, you know. And, you know, I don't really care <laughs> that much about this sort of thing. I was just kind of trying to help my back. And I looked at this woman, and I was so flabbergasted because I didn't expect this, you know. And I looked at her, and I said, I don't want to look like you. <laughs> I said, that's not why I'm here. And she said, and it was so great because she's like, you will never look like me, Michelle. <laughs> she was like, she was so proud of the way she looked, and it was just two opposites meeting. And then she kept trying to have me weigh, you know, lift like it was like 150 pounds, and it fell on me, like it fell on me. <laughs> I was like, ouch, <laughs> this is terrible. So I finally left that class. Um, <laughs> and I went to this other person that was not as recommended but could um, put up with me, <laughs> which is hard to do in this kind of environment because I fool around and I joke and I pretty much sabotage what we're trying to do. Um, and finally she encouraged me to come to a, a mat class. Like I did a few private classes and she wanted me to come to this mat class. And I came and I just like, she'd come over to me and I just kept comparing myself. You know, I'd be like, I can't do that. <laughs> And she's like, and I had already told her that the Buddha said that comparing is madness. And so I'd look, my eyes would wander and I'd look over and I'd just feel so incompetent. And, you know, and she'd, I'd say, you know, why, why can't I do that? And she'd say, comparing is madness. <laughs> it was so humbling, uh, but so good. It's like the practice is humbling. If, the, if life isn't humbling enough for you, then the retreat ought to do it. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's really humbling. And it, it takes this incredible ability, like Einstein said, it, it's to respect your longing, 
to be willing to, to go through the dark and to, to be willing to feel the confidence, the exhaustion, the confidence, the exhaustion, until there is that final emergence into light. And this is the most noble thing that we can do and requires the deepest respect for ourselves and others. So let's sit for a minute. In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.